This week's episode of the Aletheia Podcast is brought to you by the College Admissions Circle. Need advice getting into the college of your choice? Well, my good friend Dennis Kalur has got you with his new EduFlow course. You can find the link below in the description of this podcast, and it is 100% free, so you have absolutely no excuse. Please go check out that link, join the course, and start making your dreams come true. Thank you, and enjoy our show. Have you ever met somebody who you felt was just beyond help or reason after a certain point? You know, like you're trying to guide them towards the answer to a very difficult question, but you do all the work for them, solve the problem, freaking halfway fill in the answer bubble for them, and all they have to do is finish bubbling it in, and then all of a sudden you just take an eraser to all of your work and bubble in another answer randomly, even though it's obviously the wrong one, like it is the most incorrect possible answer you could have thought of well i feel like that was the u.s over the last couple of years on basically most things but in particular and this long long laundry list of things that we've done wrong as a country is this bullshit obviously we're in the middle of a global pandemic that at this point has been going on for months And we've had a lot of time to try and deal with this at a national level. Clearly, other countries have been doing their thing too, and a lot of them are starting to get back to normal life. But no, not here in the good old US of A, where we think civil liberties are all more important, forgetting the fact that the most important civil liberty is that to live, which is being impeded upon by the idiots who we call our neighbors in this country. For better or worse, The coronavirus response in our country has been abysmal at best. What doesn't help is decisions that severely undercut our ability to handle not only this pandemic, but global health emergencies that may happen in the future. And unfortunately, that's exactly what just happened. In May of this year, President Donald Trump announced that unless the United States could see from the World Health Organization, a change in their relationship, especially with China, and the way that they were implementing our funding, among other policies, that they would be terminating our relationship with them. And although the United States gave the WHO 30 days to give in to the demands of this ultimatum, we just pulled the trigger anyway, 11 days in, and decided we were going to sever our relationship with them. Now, I'm not saying that only a person with an IQ below room temperature would make this decision in the middle of a global pandemic, because that would be rude. And as you know, I'm a really nice guy. So what I'm doing is suggesting that perhaps this wasn't a very smart thing to do. And then I'm confirming that suggestion by saying that this is the stupidest shit Donald Trump has pulled since he stared directly at an eclipse, or better yet, decided to try dealing with hurricanes by suggesting that we nuke them. Now, I know that there are some of you who think, well, the US was paying way too much to the WHO. We should not be paying that much when other countries aren't paying their fair dues. And oh, he had a point. They were helping China and assisting Beijing and their cover up of the whole coronavirus outbreak from the start. And yes, while there might have been some problematic policies in the end, we're shooting ourselves in the kneecaps by doing this. And if you don't understand exactly why us pulling out of the WHO is such a bad thing, well, buddy, have I got some news for you. 
The way that the global health infrastructure works right now is a lot more complicated than us just giving money to the WHO and them spending it everywhere. The fact is, we're the ones who are losing out as a result of this decision. Confused? You should be. All of this is really complicated. Fortunately for you, my friend, as always, I'm here to break it down for you. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hi, my name's Alex Joseph, your friendly neighborhood, sleep-deprived pre-med, here to make science a little more user-friendly and the world a little less full of lies. This is the Aletheia Podcast. In order to understand exactly what's going on in the present, we need to establish a bit of history about how the WHO came into existence in the first place. By understanding the sins of the past, we can more accurately assess the screw-ups of the present. So, let's get into it. The WHO, or World Health Organization, was established in 1948 as a subcommittee of the United Nations. The mission of the World Health Organization includes a variety of things, among them advocating for universal health care and managing global health crises and, in general, just promoting the general good for all of humankind. That's not my words, that's taken straight from the WHO itself. In short, their job is to make sure that all of humanity is staying safe with regards to healthcare emergencies and access to healthcare in general. However, The politics of this organization is where things start to get a little bit complicated. Like I mentioned before, the WHO is actually a subdivision of the United Nations. Its parent body is actually the United Nations Economic and Social Council, which kind of makes sense if you think about it, because the World Health Organization, among other things, requires a lot of funding. Managing global health emergencies is an expensive ordeal. If you all remember back in 2014, the whole Ebola scare, the WHO was really involved there too. And if you've seen a variety of zombie movies, World War Z comes to mind, you might remember that the WHO has a bit of role in some of those too. But unfortunately, in real health crises, the WHO can't really do its job without member funding. And that's where a lot of these politics get kind of tricky. You see, WHO funding primarily comes from its members. These members are often thought of as the members of the WHA, the World Health Assembly, which is the oversight body and the decision-making body for the WHO in its entirety. In short, the WHO makes its decisions based on the decisions of this council, which has 194 representatives from a variety of nations as well as an executive board of 34 healthcare professionals. Which makes sense because you'd want people who know global health to be in charge of the organization. Currently, its director general is Tedros Adhanom, a former health and foreign policy minister for Ethiopia. Now, the United States' role in the WHO has always been a substantial one. As with most things that involve global decision-making and power, the United States just couldn't help but get involved, even from the very start of the WHO. That's why in 1948, we helped actually charter the inception of the organization. The United States became a member of the WHO through a joint resolution we signed in 1948, way back during the actual beginning of the WHO itself. But that's where this becomes a little bit tricky. As such, since the very beginning, we've had a long-term, uh, 
entanglement, if you will, with the WHO. A word I use because clearly, just like my girl Jada, we didn't really think it was all that serious given our current course of action. But all jokes aside, it's not even entirely clear if we can leave. So first off, why would we ever want to? And second, can we even do that? Well, the answer as to why we would want to leave the WHO in the middle of a global pandemic is difficult to answer. Mostly because there's no good reason that I can personally think of, although the president seems to have a few up his sleeve. His chief complaint, according to the initial reasons he cited, was one of two things. One, he believed that the WHO was helping China to cover up the initial outbreak of the coronavirus. And two, he seemed to think that China overall had way too much influence over the organization and that it was basically just becoming another source of propaganda and influence for the Chinese government. Now, this is obviously in the midst of a lot of heated tensions that have risen between the US and China given their escalating trade and socioeconomic conflicts. But that being said, it doesn't seem as though a lot of his reasoning really holds any weight. For instance, he falsely claimed that the medical journal The Lancelet had come out with reports of the coronavirus as early as December despite the fact that China didn't do anything about it until about January when the first US cases started popping up. But the thing is, the journal itself came out against these comments saying that their initial reports about the coronavirus outbreak in China came out around January 24th. They also went on to dispel several other false claims that Trump had made about the pandemic and its timeline. I won't go too much into specifics here, but the gist of it was this. They claimed that a lot of what Trump said was specifically damaging to legitimate efforts to control the virus and to actually make the pandemic go away. Yikes. When you cite somebody as a source and they say that you messed up in citing them, you know you done effed up. And the thing is, Donald Trump's message on this has been extremely inconsistent. In fact, in the early days of the pandemic, he has gone on record actually praising China and the World Health Organization's handling of the pandemic. It seems that his shift to blaming them only really started when people started to pick up on his administration's, shall we say, less than adequate handling of the situation within our country. A lot of legal scholars and a lot of people on the internet have been getting really angry at him, saying that he's doing this in an attempt to shift blame from his own inept response to the coronavirus over to China and laid on the WHO's back as well. Now, whether or not you believe this, and personally speaking, I 100% do because I think this is all just a way of making himself look better by putting the blame on someone else, the fact remains is that this is not a good move for the United States at all. Seriously, we are the ones who will end up losing in this scenario, and contrary to what Donald Trump might be saying, there are some people who think that China might actually stand to gain from the US pulling out of the WHO, which is kind of against the whole point of us doing this. But hold on, what could the US possibly lose? I mean, wasn't one of the things that a lot of his supporters cite in defense of this decision the fact that we pay a lot of money to the WHO? And to be fair, they're not wrong about that. We do pay a lot of money to the WHO. The United States comprises the largest contributor to the WHO's annual budget, comprising about 15% of it. Last year, that came out to an amount of 450 
million dollars. Now granted about 75% of that was voluntary and the other 25% was mandatory dues that are calculated for each member nation based on their GDP per capita, which is essentially the amount of economic output that a country has per person, roughly speaking. But the thing is, this year, we haven't been giving as many voluntary contributions, and thus far, we've only paid about $34 million, about a quarter of our annual dues for the organization. But hold on. What is it they actually use that money for, and why should we be the ones who are forced to give so much to them? Well, let's take a couple of things into account. One, the United States has always had a vested interest in staying in power in healthcare policy decisions. Historically speaking, this can actually be a very good thing for us. When the United States has a lot of monetary influence in a body like the WHO, we're able to influence a lot of global health policy decisions. As one of the front runners in biomedical technology at the moment, along with a lot of the other developing countries of the Western world, it is well within our interest to stay within the WHO. If you're looking from a foreign policy standpoint, China is doing a lot of biomedical research right now. They stand to gain a lot from the US leaving a power vacuum, and a lot of foreign policy officials actually agree about this. If the US pulls out of the WHO, China could really well fit into that vacuum that we leave and start to have a greater influence over the direction of global health policy that may very well one day start to exclude the US from its plans. This isn't even talking about the fact that the US stands to gain a lot from long-term monetary investments that we've put into the WHO over the years. For instance, our polio eradication efforts have been one of our most monumental projects that we've endeavored through the WHO. And the fact is, right now, we are one of the largest contributors to this effort, comprising 27% of the WHO's annual budget for this project. Because contrary to popular belief, polio has not been completely eradicated. There are cases every now and then throughout the world, and although it's virtually unheard of in the United States, there are a lot of people who still have to deal with this or who might be concerned about its resurgence in the future. Hence, we comprise a lot of the funding for that. But the thing is, this isn't the only vaccination campaign that we donate to. We also help with measles outbreaks and a lot of emergency health operations throughout the world. If these initiatives shrink, according to researchers who talk to Scientific American, a lot of people could end up dying. And unfortunately, if we revoke our member status from the United Nations, we also start to lose out on global health initiatives that are started elsewhere. For instance, let's take a pandemic-centric example. One of the most promising efforts for vaccination is coming out of Oxford University in the United Kingdom. The problem is, if this team develops the vaccine and we are left out of the global discussion through the WHO, getting that vaccine to people in the United States who might need it could be a lot trickier than we had initially imagined. And there's the other thing. Some of the proposals for how to go forward in global health initiatives include the United States in conducting its own domestic efforts in order to aid other countries, in order to continue the efforts that it propagated through the WHO. The problem is, like a lot of foreign policy experts have pointed out on the issue, you can't exactly just show up to other countries and vaccinate people. Amanda Glassman of the Center of Global Development has gone on record stating that for a lot of these global health initiatives, Partnerships and relationships have to be long-standing. It's a lot easier to start a global health-based project when you're establishing it through a unified effort on behalf of all of humanity, rather than just associating it with one political entity. 
In other words, people are a lot likely to buy into a global health initiative if all of the countries of the world have come together on it, rather than if it's just aid from the United States. Not every country will be amenable to our help. A lot of other countries, though, might see this as a joint effort from the rest of the world and well be able to separate the U.S.'s political affiliations out of it, thus making global health initiatives more effective. We saw this in 2014 during the Ebola outbreak, in which the United States couldn't really send a lot of its healthcare professionals or other aid workers into places that were affected by Ebola because of violence at our embassies there. The WHO, on the other hand, was a UN body, and so it didn't really have as many of the restrictions that the United States itself did. That's why we relied largely on them to help send aid to those areas. And make no mistake, global outbreaks of disease aren't just a other country's problem, because clearly taking that approach to the coronavirus screwed a lot of people over in our country, over 140,000 people, and that's just those of us who have actually died from the disease. A lot more people, keep in mind, are going to be fighting off the effects of COVID for the rest of their lives. We got hit hard because we started to think that this was other countries' problems, and pretty soon it became ours. Threats to health anywhere can very quickly become threats to health everywhere. And this was one of the founding principles of the WHO's existence anyway. So we're starting to understand more and more that us pulling out of the WHO is not a good look. A lot of these global health initiatives that could protect the United States in the long run, because the next pandemic could very well be around the corner. Luckily for us, COVID-19 isn't as deadly as it could have been. And don't get it twisted. It's killed a lot of people. But I'm saying if COVID-19 was as deadly as Ebola and if infectious as it is now, we could have been looking at a catastrophe unlike anything the world has ever seen. It would have been like something straight out of the plague from the 14th century. But we don't know what the next pandemic will look like. For all we know, it could be something of that proportion. And without proper global collaboration and infrastructure that has been in place through the WHO for years, it can be really hard to manage it. And look, I get the concerns about China's influence over the organization. And whether or not you believe that the WHO helped to cover it up, which frankly there's no real evidence for, as we previously talked about, the fact remains that without this global network, we're the ones at a disadvantage. Some political scientists predict that if the United States starts to fracture off from the WHO, other countries will take this as a green light to do the same thing. Everyone else will start to splinter and eventually the WHO will be left underfunded and without as much power. And global health initiatives will start to take the backseat as people are starting to run their own parallel tracks for these things. There are some areas in which collaboration is more important than individual political whims. A virus, after all, does not care about your relationship with China. But now that we've established that's the case, we have to start asking some of the important questions. For one, can Trump even get away with this bullshit? Like, is this a thing he can actually do? And the short answer is probably not. But the long answer is... Eh... I mean, the fact that the United States first of all entered the WHO in 1948 under a joint resolution means it's basically like a legally binding treaty as far as the United States Congress is concerned. Meaning, it's hard to tell if Donald Trump can even pull us out of the WHO without an act of Congress. 
And from a domestic policy perspective, Democrats don't really seem to think that Trump can get away with this shit. Republicans, on the other hand, are doing what they do and, well, you know, acting as Trump's propaganda machine. And look, I get it, all right? That's not entirely fair towards Republicans. To be fair, in my opinion, we have a broken system to begin with where where everybody ends up just monkey see, monkey do for whatever the president does as long as their party is the one in the White House. But regardless of American political alignings, it's hard to deny that legally speaking, this is extremely difficult to navigate, especially since according to the WHO constitution, that all member states in order to leave have to a give a one-year notice and b pay all of their outstanding dues which as i previously mentioned the united states has not done for this year yet also just a quick little thing to point out three guesses who added that language in the first place all the way from the beginning into the who constitution just just the three guesses three guesses if you guessed the good old US of A, then congratulations, you're correct. Seriously, we came up with that idea. We were the ones who said, hey, you like can't freaking leave unless you, you know, carry out your responsibilities that you promised the rest of us, bruh. And here's the thing. Even if Donald Trump can't legally leave, what he can do is put us in everybody else's shit list than the WHO. Because what they can do is list us as an inactive member. And according to their director general, that's probably what's going to happen going through the future. Meaning, we might still be part of the organization. We'll still probably have to pay our dues. We just won't get a seat at the table when it comes to making decisions, and that is incredibly stupid. Donald Trump can't even make this decision by himself as far as we know yet, and yet he's already screwed us over going forward. Now, there's a couple of things that do have cause for hope. For one, Donald Trump can't reallocate this funding by himself, technically speaking. If you've ever taken a basic civics class, you know that Congress is the one who makes the appropriations for each fiscal year, meaning that the money we set aside annually for the WHO, because this is part of our budget, will stay there unless Congress decides to update its appropriations for the upcoming year. And generally speaking, these commerce bills start in the House of Representatives, which is mostly controlled by Democrats. The Senate Republicans are likely not going to get away with just absolutely screwing all of this appropriations language over. Most likely, we're going to keep all the money that we're deciding to allocate each fiscal year towards the WHO. Unfortunately though, as the executive branch, Donald Trump can technically freeze this funding from being used, but it wouldn't really serve him any purpose as he can't necessarily reallocate this again without an act of Congress changing the appropriations. So what can he do? At this point, it's not clear. Like I said, he has actually drafted some legislation to try and change this, which if it made it through Congress, unlikely again, given the House's majority Democrat, that we could potentially start to see some of this money reappropriated. But keep in mind, this is an election year and Joe Biden has gone on record saying that if he is elected, he will try to reestablish the United States relationship with the WHO. Personally speaking, I think they'll welcome us back with open arms. After all, since we're in the number one spot for voluntary contributions and contributions overall, 
It would make sense that they'd want us back. Seriously, the second biggest contributor isn't even a country. It's the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. If we leave, global health is at stake, people. This is not a joke, my dude. So look, at the end of the day, this topic is kind of confusing. All right. It's not one we really wanted to have to deal with because honestly speaking, this is like one of the stupidest things you could have pulled in the middle of a global pandemic. Bro, we need help. We are doing abysmal at home. People are going to the beach in the hundreds at Florida without masks. Do you know Japan didn't even go into full economic lockdown? They just had everybody wear masks and they are still handling this virus on a percentage basis much better than we are what is our excuse japan gets like blown up by a nuclear reactor or invaded by giant lizards every few decades and we can't handle this okay that last part might not be true but like you get the point seriously what we've started to learn is this sometimes the politics of humanity need to be viewed as a petty concern in comparison to the will of nature. The fact is, human beings are resilient, but there are some things that this universe has not prepared us to deal with. A new virus that we are not prepared for could come at any time. I mean, clearly, that's what we've seen. The evidence is all around us. People are dying. And right now, it's not time to play this game of he said, she said, or point the finger at our fellow countries. Because one, the evidence isn't there to suggest that people aren't on our side in this pandemic. The WHO has been providing guidelines. They've been one of the world's greatest resources on this. And yes, they did have that one screw up with the whole asymptomatic thing, but that was one press briefing. By and large, they've been doing some of the most work to get the pandemic under control. And that combined with Trump's new ruling about the CDC not being able to collect data from hospitals anymore and hospitals having to give it to a private server that his administration controls, we're setting ourselves up for failure. Let's face it, the US needs help right now. We don't need to deal with this. And look, I get you. The United States' beef with China has been going on for a long time. This isn't just the Trump problem, but the fact is you can't deny he's escalated it. And he's chosen the wrong battlefields in which to hash this out on. Because in this cold war that we're sort of waging, choosing to fight this battle on the scale of the WHO is like choosing to go to Vietnam. It might seem like a place we can win, but really it's the wrong time to choose to fabricate a battle. So, at the end of the day, look, pulling out of the WHO probably won't happen. But the fact that he's even pushing us in this direction is not a good look for us. It could really damage efforts in the long run. And at the end of the day, what we need right now more than anything else is collaboration from our fellow man. What we don't need is petty squabbles getting in the way of us doing the right thing. And make no mistake... Mother Nature isn't always fair, but when she calls upon you to act, she becomes an Indian parent, I swear to God, because trust me, if you fail to do what she demands of you in order to protect your fellow man, 
she'll punish you. And when she decides to punish you, she plays no games. So, President Trump, on the off chance that you ever get to hear this, please, we're begging you. Don't let this go down in history as your biggest pullout mistake because, as my man Trevor Noah would say, we all know that that title rightfully belongs to Eric Trump. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next week.